Lord, I'm grateful for your word. And as we've already prayed in our collect, I ask that you would help us to inwardly digest your truth. Lord, help us to understand what repentance looks like and what faith in you looks like. And I pray that you would help me now as I preach. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So obviously, I'm going to talk to you this morning about the topic of repentance. And like I like to do in the catechism class, I'll ask you the question, what is repentance? And you can think about what your answer will be before I actually give you the answer that I think uh, our text today shows. Advent 2, the second week of Advent, always throws us into the front runner of Jesus, John the Baptist. And whether you're in year A in the lectionary like we are this year, or B or C, it just it picks one of the synoptic gospels. This year it's Mark's account, next year uh, it's Matthew's, next year's Mark's, and then Luke. And it just goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So we're always looking at John the Baptist on this Sunday. And his message was one of repentance. Now let me explain who John the Baptist was. He was the front runner of Jesus, the one that God sent ahead of Jesus coming. Why? Well, because all great people have someone that goes before them to, to get everybody ready. When, a, when an important dignitary is coming, they send somebody to get everybody ready for this. And that's still present today. Jesus is so important, he deserves a front runner. And John the Baptist was that person. John the Baptist is the son of a priest named Zechariah. His mother was Elizabeth. You can read the miraculous birth story of them. They were advanced in years and were childless, and the angel Gabriel comes to his father in the temple, and uh, things don't go great in that conversation. He ends up um, mute for nine months as John the Baptist is in utero, and everyone is wondering, who is this, who is this kid going to be? And his mother, Elizabeth, is actually a descendant of Aaron. We just studied Exodus, and Moses' brother Aaron the, the whole priesthood. So this is a holy kid. This is somebody who grew up around the temple. This is a pastor's kid, if you will. Um, we know that they lived in the hill country of Judea. Somewhere near Jerusalem was their home, and Zechariah would go up and serve in the temple and as his weeks were assigned. And so he was always around that area. John the Baptist grew up that way. But he, and he was the cousin, by the way, of Jesus. But the thing about him is he was very odd. He wore camel's hair, a leather belt. He lived out in the wilderness area in the desert. He ate locusts and wild honey. And Matthew and the others tell us about this because it is tipping our hat to the fact that he is coming in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. If you go to 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is described as wearing that exact same dress. Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets, and he is... I say John the Baptist is the last of the old kind of prophet. There was 400 years of silence from the last prophet in the Old Testament until this front runner of Jesus shows up. And he's dressed like Elijah, and he's saying things that sound like the prophets of old, and people were coming in large numbers to him. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit from his very birth. The Holy Spirit came upon John the Baptist and was anointing him. And so he's preaching and large crowds were going out into the wilderness area to be baptized in the River Jordan. And he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is not the same thing as Christian baptism. Our baptismal font back there is a different kind of baptism. This was more a token of repentance. It's not the sacrament of baptism as we understand it. And he says, 
One is coming after me who's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He'll baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. That's the different kind of baptism that we need. So John was talking about repentance here. And I want to start out by asking, is repentance a good or a bad thing? It's a good thing, right? But we kind of lump it into the bad category because something bad must be going on to require it. So it's like uh, we have kind of mixed feelings about it. You know, I'd, I'd rather never need to repent, but I'm a realist and a sinner. And so I'd rather get quicker at repenting, get better at it, um, shorten that period from when I go off the path to when I get back on the path, be quicker to repent, receive it better. And, um, I, you know, just <laughs> I, was, I borrowed Bob Simpson's trailer, and he's got this little trailer, and I was helping somebody move a grill. And it, I was trying to back it up across my yard through two oak trees and, it, and foolishly had my dog in there so the rear view mirror's blocked. And it was a small enough trailer that both the side mirrors, I couldn't see it. If I was going right, I couldn't see it. And when, when it went off the track, by the time it came into my side mirror, it was too far. It just kept jackknifing. And I had to stop, pull straight again, and I had to do this about five times. I'm usually pretty good at backing these things up and getting quicker at recognizing, oh, I can see it in the mirror. I'm off. Back up, do it again, back up, do it again, back up, do it again. The quicker you get at it, the more the task gets done. I want to think about that as repentance for us. Rather than going into the full-on jackknife and breaking stuff, get back on the path quicker. It's not going to self-correct once you start going off the course. Don't just push it harder. Back up, start again, back up, start again. Keep going back to that. Now, when we talk about repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, and it's a compound word, and it literally means change of mind. I'm sure you've heard me say that. Repentance is, it does involve a change of mind, for sure. But it's a lot more than that. I've also said it's going in one direction and then turning and going in the other direction, which is true. That is what repentance is. But I think it misses something really important. It's not just a turning from. It's a turning to. And it's specifically turning back to the Lord, or a returning, if you will. So, as I look at this text from John the Baptist, I think of repentance is returning, and specifically returning to the Lord. Repentance is returning to the Lord. For an Old Testament-style prophet, and frankly, actually, all the Old Testament prophets, they were calling people back to covenant faithfulness. God had initiated a relationship, a covenant of relationship with his people, and they kept going off track. And the prophets were raised up, particularly in the days of the monarchy, as God's legislative prosecutors. The prophets kept going to the kings and saying, you're off track, you've abandoned the covenant. They also said, if you keep going in this direction, you will be judged. A bad judgment is coming down. And they kept going to the kings, and the kings kept going astray. And the prophets were calling for a return to the Lord and warnings of judgment if you don't. God is incredibly patient. He's slow to anger, but he is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment, and sin will always be at odds with him. And so sometimes we just rely on his kindness and think, well, he's a good God. He'll, he'll get over it, and he doesn't. He's patient, intending that to lead us to repentance. And the kings kept going astray and kept going astray and kept going astray, and the prophets kept calling them back, return. And it's interesting on this side of history to see all the ways that eventually judgment happened. One of the names for Jesus is that he is the root of Jesse. There's a Bible quiz question. Who's Jesse? You know who Jesse is? 
He's King David's father. And you'll remember when God raises up a new king after the first king, Saul, goes, goes apostate and, and rejects the covenant. He says, I'm going to raise up a new king. And he sends his prophet Samuel to Jesse's household. And Jesse lines up all but one of his sons. And the Lord tells Samuel, not that one, not that one, not that one. And then they get to the end and there's no, it's not there. And so he says, do you have any other sons? And he said, oh yeah, there's that David out with the sheep. And they bring David, you know the story, and then he anoints him, and then the spirit rushes upon him, and this is the king of God's choosing. And David is a phenomenal king, but he's not perfect, and it's not long before his household divides and splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and the, the refrain of the kings, for the most part, is, and they did what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's usually, and they did what their fathers did, which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's only a few kings in the whole northern and southern kingdom that do good. There's a few of them. But for the most part, they just keep failing. And so this idea of a root of Jesse and the stump of Jesse is because there is judgment, and it happened. Jesse's line got cut down. It just, the, the, the monarchy got cut down. It's just a stump. It's not dead. It's just not a big, strong tree anymore. It's just a stump. There's life in it. And, it. and it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And it keeps going through. That's Isaiah 11. Now, I have to imagine that John the Baptist was reading Isaiah quite a bit. In fact, when asked in one of the other Gospels who he was, he says he's not the Christ himself. He's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which is a direct quote from Isaiah 40. But back around Isaiah 10, God is described as having brought judgment on the northern kingdom, and he uses the Assyrian army to do it, and they march right through the northern parts of the kingdom, and they get almost to Jerusalem. If you backed up to Isaiah 10, it says, um, it says, uh, where is it? He, this very day, he, meaning the king of Assyria, will halt at Nob. Nob is a town just outside of Jerusalem, not far from Jericho. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. But behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power, and the great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with the axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You know, the cedars of Lebanon, even to this day, are a thing. It was where a lot of the wood came for construction. There's mighty forests, and that's up to the north of Israel. But the Assyrian army came down because finally God's judgment fell on them and wiped out the northern kingdom. That was 722 B.C. A similar thing happened to the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. This time it was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming in and doing that and destroying Jerusalem and the temple. Again, they didn't learn. They didn't learn the lesson. And so the prophets were saying, repent, 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 return to the Lord or else. And finally, the or else happened. But it didn't wipe out hope completely. There's this stump left and there's life in it. The seed of the next generation is in the stump and a shoot comes forth. This would be Jesus, the son of David, if you didn't make the connection. And so it was a, repentance was a call to trust the Lord again. Or maybe for us, for some of us, for the first time. It's a it's a choice to not just turn away from worldliness, but to turn to God. So I was thinking about my own life on this, and, and it's not necessarily an explicit wickedness. It's just kind of worldliness. 
I came to faith as a high school senior in a really good church and was discipled in a youth group, and I went to college about 10 miles away from that church. I stayed in the same city in Pittsburgh. And my junior and, and sophomore, or my freshman and sophomore year, I just, I didn't connect with the, the ministry that was there. It was called Cornerstone. The irony is when I got to seminary and it was in Greek school there, in Greek, summer Greek, the professor, Rich Herbster, and I realized we were both classmates at the same grade level in undergraduate studies, and he was in the small group I went to. And, and then I just was like, ah, and I, I just didn't connect, and I left it for about three years. And he said, oh my goodness, you were in that small group. Those guys are my best friends to this day. You and I would have been best friends if you'd stayed in that small group. I thought it was interesting that the Lord brought me back around through uh, Greek in seminary to that place. But it's, it was just, you know, engineering school. I was on the rowing team. I got into all kinds of extracurriculars. And by the time I was a junior in college, I realized that the Lord had just been annexed in my life. Oh, I was a believer. I, I was a Christian. I just, he wasn't the center of my life. He was just kind of off to the side. And I, by then, had a car for a job I had. So I just started driving back. It was only 10 miles. I just started driving back on Sundays to the church. I was returning to the Lord. And he became the center of my life again. It, that's the kind of repentance. It's returning to the Lord. It's putting away those other things, getting them out of the way, and then returning to the Lord. So I, I, what I'd like to do now is I'm, I'm going to go through this text from um, Matthew 3 and look at some of the specific things that are part of this kind of repentance. Repentance is returning to the Lord, and a lot of stuff happens in here. You start by preparing the way of the Lord. The message of John the Baptist was prepare a way for the Lord. Now, of course, he's the majestic one. He's almighty. He can go through anything to get where he wants to get. But somehow, he seems to respect our decisions on certain things. And if we put obstacles, they'll be there until we remove them. That will keep convicting us and calling us to move them out of the way. But is there an obstacle in your life that is taking the number one place? It can be anything. It doesn't have to be explicitly wicked. It can just be anything that is taking the number one place that only God deserves. Part of repentance is removing the obstacle. Get it out of the way so God can be the center thing. Anything that's first in your heart is an obstacle. Second, they, were, they left the city and they went out into the wilderness to meet with John the Baptist and the others. I would say repentance involves some kind of retreat. I'm a fan of literal retreats into literal wilderness areas. I tend to get clarity in those moments. But it can be a virtual retreat, maybe turning off digital things, getting, getting the noise away to be able to meet with the Lord. Repentance involves seeking Him, realizing that He's not the center of my life. And so I start seeking first His kingdom. That's what they were doing. They, they recognized there was something going on in the wilderness. They walked away from their lives in the city. They went out to that wilderness area to hear what the, the preacher in the woods was saying, and, and to seek God. Repentance involves going on retreat. Third, they were confessing their sins, it says, in verse um, 5. They, uh, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I imagine that was not a quiet, bow heart, inwardly confessing. I think they actually were speaking them out, naming those things that were first in their heart that shouldn't be, those idolatrous things, wicked things, whatever. James in the New Testament says, confess your sins to one another. 
You know what's funny? Is sin drives us into secrecy and shame and hiding. And when we speak it out loud and are reminded of the forgiveness we have through Jesus and the cross, it takes the power of that sin away. It's no longer hidden. It's, it's brought out and it's healed and cast away. And whether it's to somebody you trust that's another Christian or come to one of the pastors, confessing your sins out loud is a part of repentance. Owning the sin and giving it back to God and saying, heal me of this, get it out of my life. Confessing their sins. They were also rejecting false saviors, or they were called to. The, the scribes and Pharisees came out, and, and I think it's interesting. They probably were coming out there out of jealousy to see what all this is. Why is the whole city going out into the wilderness area to see this, this weird preacher guy? And when he sees them coming, I think it's interesting. He, he seems to ascribe to them some kind of repentance. He says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? I don't know if that's really what they were doing. I think they might have been just kind of curious to know why he had such a crowd and they may be jealous of him. But regardless, he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And he said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Interesting how they thought because we're in the right camp, because we're descendants of Abraham, we're guaranteed salvation. And I think repentance is rejecting false saviors. Maybe family prestige. You know, I grew up in a Christian household. My dad was in the seminary. Or um, we're in a Christian nation. And this idea of tribal identity. You know, the saying is true that God has no grandchildren. And by that, God has sons and daughters. And you're not saved because your father is a Christian or your mother is a Christian. You are saved it's very clear in Scripture, by faith in Christ alone. So each new generation has to come to God through Jesus. You can't just go, well, my parents are Christians, and I was raised in a Christian home, therefore I must be a Christian. It doesn't work like that. And he's saying, don't just say because Abraham is our, is our lineage. No, God can take a stone and make children out of a stone. I mean, he's Old Testament prophet, right? So he likes colorful illustrations and really abrasive calls to repentance. So, but I think it's helpful for us to think of any false saviors I might be leaning in, leaning on other than the Lord, other than Jesus. So, rejecting those things, casting them out. Another thing is believing in judgment and wrath in order to flee to Jesus. Um, in here, a number of times, he talks about wrath, he talks about judgment, he talks about an axe. You know, probably going back to that Isaiah passage where God has come in with an axe and he's hewn down the cedars of Lebanon to judge Assyria, but he's used Assyria to take out the stump of the, the monarchy, this idea of judgment and cutting down the strength of a tree. Um, judgment is real. And we say this, I believe he will come to judge the living and the dead. We actually say it, but do I believe that's really what's going to happen? I think of the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. In chapter one, he talks about the ungodliness of the world and how they reject God even though knowledge about God is readily available and they end up with a debased mind and doing things that are, are not in keeping with their character and why they were designed. But then chapter two says, and you religious ones, in a sense, you do the very same things that you judge the world doing. And he says, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? This is Paul now writing post-resurrection that there is a day of judgment coming. 
He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? You know, I'm a basically good person. God loves me. He'll look over those sins. That's okay. He's, of course, I'm a good person. I'll get to heaven. That kind of idea of like, God is just a benevolent um, big teddy bear or something, and there's no no wrath. There's no um, uh, will that is set against sin. God is super clear about that. And And Paul says, don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's interesting. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but our works show what our heart actually believes. He says he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Ah, those are tough words to hear. But see, the thing about it is, there is a solution. God's wrath has been pointed in one focused place on the cross. He dealt with our sin. And I shudder to think how awful it would be for anyone to go before a holy, pure, holy God in their own sins with no mediator, without Jesus covering us. And, and the call is to repent and receive what Jesus has done for you. God's wrath has been dealt with there. And our comfortable words in the liturgy remind us of that each week. But part of repentance is actually believing that there is judgment and wrath against sin. I have to come to that intellectual understanding that this is wrong and bad and it has no place in the kingdom of God. And if I want to be in the kingdom of God, that can't be part of it. So that's got to go away. Now, there's goodness in our Lord. He loves us so much, he's willing to send his son to die for for that. We can't solve our problem, but he does it for us, but we have to receive it. So part of properly repenting is believing in that. It also includes fruit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, verse 8. This is effort, you know. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So if we repent, it should cause us to do some different things. And then finally, submitting to baptism, both water baptism and the Holy Spirit baptism. One mightier than John the Baptist has come, Jesus, and he brings his Holy Spirit and fire. His baptism is power. So repentance is coming to Jesus to receive that power, to receive what we need to live this life, because we can't do it in our own strength. No one can. Repentance is returning to the Lord. And I think it's interesting how Jesus talked about evil being cleaned out of a house and swept clean. You can't just leave it empty. It's got to be filled with God's spirit. Otherwise, evil, even stronger, will come back in. So it's not just turning away from something. It's then returning to the Lord and having him fill the house, fill our lives. This would be habits of word, being in the scripture, sacrament, regularly coming to the Lord's table, and fellowship with other Christians to encourage us. So, I mean, that's, you know why we built the pavilion now? I mean, 15 years we may do with a tent, but part of the vision of an invitation and hospitality was to draw the church back together after a pandemic that has scattered everyone because we need fellowship. We need to be in the flesh with other people who can encourage us in this new life. Word sacrament, and fellowship. All of this is part of repentance. So as we are in this season of Advent, um, repent and believe in Jesus. Invite him to come in. Make sure he's first in your heart. And 
It's only by God's help. So ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to be able to do it. So Lord, I thank you for your scriptures. We don't like having to repent, but we so need it. And I ask that you would show us what we need to repent of. Help us to walk in these steps. Thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, but thank you even more for the ministry of Jesus who has paid for our sins. We cry out, have mercy, Lord, in his holy name. Amen.